Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. I'm really excited today to welcome Dr. ZQ Lin. But first, let's check in on current and hot topics in health and healthcare. Howie, I'm going to introduce ZQ. So let's flip the script here and let you go first uh, on the podcast. And I know you want to give an update on repetitive head trauma in the setting of football course. Football season's now just getting started. What a Great timing to talk about this. Tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, so back in October last year, episode 53, we first talked about concussions in young athletes. And then we were fortunate in April on episode 75 to have, have Dr. Michael Alasco of the Concussion Center uh, and CTE Center at Boston University. And my take-home messages from those uh, podcasts and our discussions were, one, repetitive head injuries don't have to cause concussions to cause real harm. Two, repetitive head injuries may cause meaningful and permanent brain injury, leading to permanent behavioral and cognitive changes, often associated with the pathologic diagnosis of what we call chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. So fast forward to this past week, when a report comes out of JAMA Neurology, led by Dr. Olasco again, reviewing brains from 152 deceased young contact sports participants. What's, what's young? What like, young? I think 32 and under. I think 32 is the uppermost age. And, and by the way, what did they die from? They died from suicide or unintentional drug overdose. That was the most dominant causes. This was not a randomized trial. It's called a convenience sample in Harlan. You can explain to our listeners more about what that means. But basically, it meant that it's patients whose brains were donated after death for evaluation. There was no randomization. But it does increase the concern that repetitive head injuries increased by either duration or severity of impacts, and that seemed to increase the likelihood of permanent brain injury. We need more research on this, but we have enough to know that elite athletes playing American football in particular are at high risk for this permanent harm, but it's not limited to just them. It starts earlier, perhaps in late high school and certainly in college. And so, as you said, Harlan, we're entering high school, college, and the pro football season. I think it's worth thinking about and talking about what can we do to prevent this epidemic of traumatic harm? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this field is that this isn't just about people who, who you know, we when we were playing when we were back in the day, yeah, you know, people would talk about someone's bell being rung. You yeah. know, it was like, you know, and it's not about someone who who gets hit so hard that they pass out or that their their bell is rung. It actually even just this repetitive, you know, head injuries that that maybe seem incidental and and people don't even notice that much at the time, yeah, can cumulatively end up causing all this harm. So let me just ask you, you're saying about prevention. Are you saying you think we should start to ban high school and college football? Yeah, I'm not. I, so I'm, I'm going to I hope people get the message over time that in some ways I'm a, a pretty libertarian person. I think people have freedoms, but I do think we've not done a good job of communicating to the individuals who play and in many cases, their parents of what the risks are. And as we learn more about the risks, I think we have an obligation to do better with consent. And Harlan, you've written about consent in the medical setting, but I think we need to actually have informed consent here. Yeah, but well, people need facts, you know, about what they're doing. By the way, you're talking about football, but let's talk about the real football with soccer, you know, meaning worldwide, people refer to soccer as football. And, you know, these headers also, you know, you think about soccer, you know, aren't you using your feet and, yeah. you know, you're not, but, but actually the headers, have this some of the same issue. 
there are actually there's headgear that you can wear, but but nobody wants to wear it, and it hasn't been mandated. I, I'm I don't know what what, what are you, I mean. This is a bigger deal than just talking about football. So I you know I did go down a rabbit hole in pre- preparing for this talk, and I will say that the American Academy of Pediatrics has been on both sides of the issue. Uh, one can make a strong case that at the very least we should stop teaching young people tackle football and leave it to a little bit later in their careers, you don't have to necessarily ban it, but you can limit the amount of head butting and head hitting during practices, for instance. Like everything you would do to reduce repetitive head trauma seemingly would have a positive impact. And we should be looking at that. Yeah, I remember when Dr. Lasko was here, didn't he say that he wouldn't allow his own kids to play football, right? Yeah, I, so. That's what he said. And I will tell you, the more I've read this, the more, you know, if I am fortunate I have two nearly adult uh, young women and uh, my children who uh, don't play football, so I don't have to think about it personally. But if I had a, a son, I would not be letting him engage in football. I think it's too dangerous. Yeah, I actually don't know. You know, for me, football is a guilty pleasure. I really enjoy watching. I grew up in Ohio. I watched the Ohio State Buckeyes. You know, I watched pro sports. And and yet I do feel guilty about it because I think it's like the American gladiators. These people are all putting themselves at risk. We're talking about head injury, but there's lots more. Many of them are disabled. They have marked disabilities in the long run. And so, yeah, I I feel concerned about that. By the way, do you know, does the American Academy of Pediatrics have a position on this? Yeah, that's it. So they they take both sides in a way. They have a position statement that says we should do more to mitigate and parents should give informed consent or something along those lines. I don't know if they use the words I used. But then there's a separate paper a year later from a, a group of very respected pediatricians who basically say the American Academy of Pediatrics is talking out of both sides of its mouth. If you believe the science, you can't be saying, okay, it's okay to do it, but just make sure parents know how dangerous it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there's more to come on this, but let's just say for many places in the country, football's religion, you know, it's akin to religion and it's so embedded in the culture. And as you know, economically, yeah. the NFL is a powerhouse. It's the, it's and, the and high school one. and college football are big business. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not saying ban it, but boy, I do think that there should be more of a national conversation about it. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, that's great, Howie. So, let, hey, let's get to our guest, ZQ Lin. Howie, I'm really excited today to introduce our guest, Dr. ZQ Lin, who works with me at CORE. Let me just get you the basics. He's the Senior Director in Healthcare Analytics at the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation and a Senior Research Scientist at the Yale School of Medicine. He has over two decades of experience analyzing healthcare data to support quality measurement and improvement. He's led numerous analytic projects funded by many of our national federal agencies. He has in-depth expertise in healthcare data, including claims, registries, it, you name it, he's one of the top experts in it. Uh, just to give you a sense, he receives undergraduate master's degrees from, from Beida, from Peking University in China. You should know it's, it's one of the top universities in China. Getting into it's almost impossible only the very best get there. He was one of those. And then he, he came to the U.S. and got his Ph.D. degree from Stony Brook and joined us at, at CORE in 1997 and has been with us for 26 years. And let me just tell you the real deal. He's one of the people I respect most in the world. He has such deep integrity and remarkable wisdom. He's one of the world's leading authorities in measuring healthcare quality and has contributed so much to the current state of U.S. healthcare quality measurement systems. He's kind, 
He's a wonderful mentor and leader. Everyone who works with him, you know, has utmost respect for him. He cares deeply about improving the world. And he's a wonderful family man. He sets a great example for all of us. He's been my partner at CORE for all these years. And let me just tell you, I couldn't have even uh, participated in groups that, that accomplished a fraction of what we've had without him. So, so Zeke, let me first say to you, uh, thank you. Thank you for being part of my life. Thank you for being part of my teams. We're so lucky. Uh, I'm so lucky to work with you. And I'm so grateful that you joined us today. You know, I talk about quality measures all the time. I've listened to Harlan talk about quality measures all the time. But, and, and we talk about it on the show frequently, but I don't think I at least understand like the depth and complexity of quality measures and why they're so important, but also why they're so difficult to create and then measure. Can you give us a little sense? What are quality measures and why do we care about them? So I think I can use, I, I, let me put it this way, two graphs capture my thinking on this issue. And I, I've been using these two graphs to explain to new team members about what is quality measure, why they are important. The one graph I use is from 1998 JAMA study. I think Harlan will know that study. I think the title is called National Use and Effective effectiveness of beta blocker for uh, for treatment of ARD AMI patient. So the, the heart attacks, for heart attacks. Yeah. Heart attacks, Just for, yeah. we don't, we have a lay audience here, yeah. Yeah, Go on. so one of the key findings is that all the patients who were prescribed beta blocker at discharge had a better survival rate, right? That's good news. You can treat patients with this medication. But another finding was striking. That's what the graph captured. The graph is US MED. So for each state, we have the number of prescription rate for beta blocker for ideal heart attack patient, right? And then if you look at the MED, it was colored based on the rate for each state. And then you see all kind of color indicating wide variation across US state. I remember the highest state probably highest five state, the prescription rate is in the 70. And then the lowest five state, the prescription rate in the 30s. Wow. So at the time I say, wow, look at this graph. I, I would think anyone look at the graph would say, we need to do something about it. This is effective treatment and simple, and yet we are not there. So two things jump out at me, right? Even the highest state, 70, yeah. I don't think that's the top mark we want to hit, right? And then you go, you see the variation of 30%. Think about if we can elevate everyone to 70, right? So, you know, it just indicates there's so much opportunity in there. We need to know where we are, understand the gap of performance, identify the opportunity. I mean, I, I've been using that graph to, to, to explain to the team member why we are doing quality measure. I think everyone looking at that say, yeah, that's not acceptable. And then we need to do something about it, right? And then another graph I use to explain to team member about quality measure is, is from another a different study in 2019. It's in JAMA Network Open Paper. It's about 20 years trend in outcome of heart attack patient. So that study showed that from 20, 
and I, to me, when I look at that, wow, then that's what we should shoot for, right? And that's point to the what is desirable and more importantly, achievable outcome. So the graph jumped, the one of the graph jumped out at me is that we show the mortality rate for about 4,000 hospitals in 2009. And we see another, uh, we, so there's curve kind of bell curve for 2009 and then another curve for 2014. If you look at the graph, the 2009, the curve bell curve centered around 20%. And then 2014 bell curve then uh, centered around 12%. Now you shift the whole curve from 20 to 12. That's huge improvement. Not just that, if you look at the curve, you also see the curve for 2014 is much narrower. That indicating the variation among hospital decrease. And to me, like, like what we want is high quality of care for everyone, everywhere. It doesn't matter which hospital you go to, you should get a good care. So I, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I thought that's capture my thinking. Yeah, I think those, those are really great examples. I mean, in that first example, we have an effective medication. We looked at people who had no contraindication, were ideal candidates for this medication. And, and there were so many people who weren't being prescribed it in the 1990s. And then, like you said, you, you fast forward ahead in a period where we were focusing on improving that quality. And by the way, that quality improved a lot. By the time you got to 2010, it was more than 90% of people were on these drugs because of a lot of work that a lot of people around the country did, these measures helped stimulate and catalyze. And then in a period of 20 years where there wasn't a new treatment that came out, but just improvements in quality, there were dramatic reductions in death rates, dramatic reductions in hospitalization rates that I believe were really attributable to the fact that we were just delivering care more effectively, not that we had new miracle treatments. And it was introducing this idea that how we practice medicine can be a, a, such an important influence on how people do beyond like some new touting, some new medication or breakthrough. We have to have breakthroughs in the way that we, we, we work so that we don't let anyone fall through the cracks. And, and ZQ played such an important role in our ability to do this. So I wanna just pivot to one thing, ZQ. So we, we are, I, I think, you know, we can be so proud of a lot of those accomplishments. There was one measure we did that became quite controversial. You know, for, for you and me, we thought it made so much sense. It was readmission. CMS came to us and said they wanted to start measuring costs of care. We said, if you measure cost in isolation, it's not going to be very helpful. But how about readmission? Lots of people go home from the hospital. And we, we discovered even one in five people with heart failure end up back in the hospital within 30 days. That's both a terrible outcome for the patient because that means that they didn't have successful recovery and it's expensive. And we convinced CMS to allow us to start developing that as a measure. But a lot of people around the country and a lot of hospital, you know, said it's not our fault. These are the patient's fault. We send them home fine. And, and they come up and end up being readmitted. There were a lot of issues. How do you think about that readmission measure now looking back? And, and what are your thoughts about the kind of reception that it received? And, 
and the, and why it's been so hard for us to improve readmission, you know, as much as we have death rates, survival, improved survival. Yeah, I think we did get a lot of pushback on readmission measure, right? I, I think I actually had a good story to share, like right after the first, I think three readmission measures were publicly reported. I went to Narragansett, Rhode Island, stay in the bed and breakfast. So in the morning when I had breakfast, there's an older lady there. So she asked me what I did. I said, oh, I, I, I'm doing all this like, quality measure development. And it's so interesting. She was an older patient. So, oh, I heard about readmission. So I was so surprised to learn that about a quarter of our patient will be back in hospital within 30 days. She said, I thought that's really high number. And, and I said, yes, I agree. I, I, I thought the number is just too high. So to me, like, you know, there's a force. It's as forced like dichotomy. People want to put us in the opposing camp to hospital. I think we are in the same camp. We are all trying to serve patients well. Now, even when we work with CMS, right, we're not just making them happy. We want to help them do a better job serving our country's patients. I think no one will deny 25% 30-day readmission rate is acceptable. We need to do something about it. And it is true, hospital, you know, they cannot be responsible for every readmission. But I think we will agree that a lot they can do, right, to reduce readmission. Think about like medication reconciliation, discharge disposition, like instruction, how we prepare a patient, how we help to transition patient. Even I have seen some hospital, they, they became aware of some rehab facility, some nursing home, they were not doing a good job. So they make a point not to send in patient to those places. So, so there are a lot of places that another area the hospital can do. I also remember one time like, the, in, the, in the conference, someone mentioned, oh, you couldn't hold hospital responsible for readmission. And, and I asked him, I said, okay, so what, can, what, who should be responsible for that, right? Where do patients go to, to get better outcomes? So I think we have seen reduction in readmission. It, it is hard because healthcare is messy, right? So, so it's, it's not easy. To me, like, when I talk to the analysts, I say, like, patient quality and safety is kind of like airplane quality and safety. You need to get everything right to get safety. You only took one part to go around to fail the whole thing. So I think when we develop measure, we need to, to focus on patient outcome. You know, it's it, different provider, different hospital, they can work their way to get there, but we need to focus on outcome that can encourage, promote different kind of intervention to get to the better outcome. The paper you talked about, uh, Mortality After Heart Attack, is actually a paper I show in class every year because uh, I think it's so important and it's so graphical and hopefully we'll link it in, in, um, on our website so our listeners can look at it. But it really is compelling. It gives me a lot of hope about what can be done. Is there another area of healthcare right now that gives you a lot of hope that you think we're going to make a big impact through the quality movement? I think digital digital health. People complain about number of measure. My response is say, okay, we need more measure. 
So people will be really surprised. I say more measure, but more useful measure, more timely measure, less burdensome with EHR data, with computational facility and capability. I think we can do that. I think it's this new new type of measure that leverage like better healthcare data, more timely data, and then you better you know sooner feedback to provider. So it's not a measure should be part of the learning healthcare system. It's not you know an isolated reporting. It should be you know we should be able to gather information out of the system, provide feedback to provider right away, and they can act on it. So it's I think the future it's just, there's so many potential. If we can utilize digital help, there's so many opportunities. We're getting toward the end of this, and I want to make sure you have an opportunity to tell us what you're most optimistic about right now. Is there is there one thing that gives you the most hope? You said about digital as far as progress in your field, but within healthcare in general, is there something that gives you the most hope? Medicine is kind of increasing at teen sport. That's what we need. Right, because it is a messy system, noisy system. Right, you need to people to work together. Now I see more and more like integration, like surgeon, nurse, clinician, they work together. I think that's the way forward. And also big data, you know, like machine learning and natural language processing, image processing, give us a lot of potential. We just need to tap into that. So I, I think the potential is huge. Like we can do so much better. Ezekiel, I just want to thank you for taking the time. I want to thank you for all your the years of contribution, and uh, not only to our group, but but to the nation and beyond. And what a privilege it's been to work with you. And thank you so much for joining us on Health and Veritas. And the best, the best is yet to come. So thank you very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. He is really an incredible man, Harlan, and and you've been a key mentor and source of inspiration to him even as he has inspired so many around him. So it's just great to hear from him. And, you know, we're back from break, but semaglutide and the other novel anti-obesity drugs wait for no one. And so I know there's been a lot of breaking news over the summer. What should, what should little old me and our listeners know about this? Well, you know, I love talking about this, but like there is so much that's happened over yeah. the course of this. And in addition, lots to talk about about the pandemic and vaccines. So we'll hold this for other other podcasts. But, you know, this week, it thought it would be good to talk a little bit about these new anti-obesity drugs. And while we were off, there were two big news flashes about them that I think are are worthy of our attention. Yeah. So tell us about each of them. I know one's heart failure, and I know uh, that one was just a a bigger study. Yeah. So first, you know, let's just say one of the questions has been, we know that these drugs are very effective in, in helping people to lose weight. Remember, these drugs also have been used for a long time. These are the GLP-1 receptor agonists, the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So they're, they're sort of hormonal drugs, and they've been used for a long time in people with, for people living with diabetes to help them control their blood sugar. The FDA, you may remember, said, we're concerned about diabetes drugs. There's some, there's some information that some of these di- that some of these drugs like sulfonylureas, people may have heard of those kind of drugs, may be actually increasing cardiovascular risk. So the FDA said, when you've got a new drug that for diabetes, you've got to test it to see whether it actually causes harm. Does it, even though it helps people control their blood sugar, maybe paradoxically, it could be causing harm. So they instead, they said to the companies, you got to do a safety trial. And it turned out when they did a safety trial with these drugs, 
unexpectedly, I think, and out of proportion to the value that they provided on controlling blood sugar, they actually reduced risk. They, they, they lowered the risk of heart disease. And, and so everyone was very excited about that. So it already has that track record for people with diabetes, but lots of people have been saying like, we know this loses weight, but is it safe? Or, and does it have that same property of lowering risk in people who are being treated for obesity? And there's a large trial that Nova Nordisk, who makes Wagovi uh, uh, and, and Ozempic, which is made up of semaglutide, that's the name of the generic of it. And they did a big study of about 17,000 people where, where they, they compared semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams with placebo, in for see how it would prevent major heart events uh, over a period of about up to five years. They looked at people who were age 45 and older, who were overweight or, or had obesity, and had, these were people who had uh, established heart disease. So this is what we call secondary prevention, but no prior history of diabetes. So they want to make sure that this wasn't among people with diabetes because the, the SEC, you know, from regulatory, when, when there's, what do they call this, material information or something becomes available, you've got the companies have to immediately say it. So they made a big press release. They said, guess what? Positive study. This, this study uh, seemed to have the effect of reducing risk by about 20%. Now, this is about what we saw for people with diabetes, but, but amazing news. We don't have more information. It's not published yet. It was just a press release, but, but highly anticipated, probably come out in November. But again, good news about this. And uh, anyway, it, it, that was the first thing that came out. And then, but the second one is the one by our former student and your former student, Mikhail uh, Kasubrad. Yeah, Mikhail Kosiborod. Remember, he was he was here with us. He was, and he joined us in the clinical scholars program. And now he's in Kansas City, Missouri. But he he led this study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine, presented at the European College of Car uh, uh, Society of Cardiology in Amsterdam. And here was the deal: there's a kind of heart failure that, of, of all the people with heart failure, about half people have a kind of heart failure where their squeezing function of the heart is normal. But, but, but the relaxation of the heart is abnormal and they can have all sorts of symptoms of heart failure. They get impaired, they're hospitalized a lot, their life expectancy is decreased. And, and we have yet to find effective medications, FDA approved medications that actually help these people do better. So we're, we're really at sea with these people. We have a lot of medications for people whose heart doesn't squeeze well. That kind of heart failure, we, we have treatments for. But this kind of heart failure where the heart's squeezing fine, we've, we've really been at sea. And there was, a, there was a question of, well, a lot of these patients actually have obesity also, and maybe the obesity and the heart failure are, are actually contributing to each other. That is, the, the obesity is contributing to the heart failure, and, and maybe the treatment of the obesity could actually help them with their heart failure. And so they took a bunch of people, about, in this case, about five, a little over 500 people, and they determined whether or not the treatment of these individuals with semaglutide, again, same medication, would improve their heart failure symptoms. And lo and behold, amazing. It was like, amazing. It, it, I mean, but, but Harlan, can you just tell us a little bit, like, I'm, I'm fascinated. You're the first person to have talked to, to me about inflammatory markers and how an inflammation is part of the mechanism for heart disease. Like there were other measures unrelated to heart failure that also improved. So many things have improved with semaglutide that it's beginning to sound more and more like this miraculous drug for a lot of aspects of cardiovascular care. Well, you've, so just hit on that for a second. So we know this C-reactive protein is an indicator of the body's inflammation. And the mean change in the CRP level was, it was a decrease of 43% with semaglutide versus about 7% with placebo. By the way, the, the weight dropped about 13% in, you know, in the people on 
semaglutide and only about 3% in the other group. Huge. So there was a big, there was weight loss, there was decrease in inflammation, there was improvement in heart failure symptoms. Look, I think about these meds, you've heard me say this before. I don't think about them as, you know, hey, I can look better or, or even just as weight loss drugs. I think these drugs do treat obesity, but are promoting health, they're reducing risk. And I think as we learn more, you know, obesity is associated with about 200 different diseases. And, you know, there's going to be lots of potential for marked benefit when obesity is concomitant with other conditions or when it may be ultimately a risk factor for future conditions, then that doesn't even count that if actually we start treating obesity in our society, we might decrease the number of hip replacements that need to be done, the knee replacements. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff here. So anyway, I'm, you know me, I'm, 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 I'm guarded, always guardedly optimistic. I think we need to continue to monitor, see what happens when millions of people are treated. But I think this can be one of the remarkable interventions of our time to address something obesity, which I don't think is a lack of will or willpower. It's, it's, it's a metabolic condition many people have in the context of our current society. And I think it can be treated and in, in, in the potential here is for marked benefit. Yeah, and we're going to have uh, Anya Yastrobov, um as well as a, a bariatric surgeon on over the next few months as well. So this is not going to uh, die out. It's an important topic to talk about. And, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act Medicare negotiation on, on these drugs is going to keep bringing this up again, because I think either next year or the following year, Medicare will add those drugs to the list of drugs that they will negotiate down the price and make it hopefully more accessible and affordable. Yeah, because we definitely have to be focusing on access and making sure that this doesn't increase disparities. And, and yeah, there's lots, there, there's a lot, lot here to to dig into. And by bariatric surgery, I wonder if it's going to persist because, you know, we'll see. Lots of people would rather take the medications than have surgery. Then. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter, X, or LinkedIn if you'd like. Yeah, we're still talking about Twitter and X and Musk. And, but anyway, for right now, I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, at H-M-K-Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. And let me just say to our listeners, please feel free to email us ideas, topics that you want us to answer, questions that you have, and we'll do our best to answer them. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track, founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs. You can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gill and Sophia Strumpf, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Amazing as always. Thank God for them. They make a huge difference and, and really we're so glad to have them back as they start their uh, junior year for Sophia and Inez and, and Miranda always. <laughs> for sure. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon. Bye.